I am all for paying to market to new customers, but I'll never be able to wrap my mind around paying for our own diners. Why should we have to pay cover fees? It's like getting penalized for being busy. That's why I'm a huge fan of Yelp Guest Manager. It's a reservation and waitlist system connected to a diner network nine times larger than Open Table, and they never charge cover fees. Learn about their new $99 per month plan for newly opened restaurants at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and tell them full comp sent you. Now here we go. You may end up saying something stupid, but that's the great thing about film. We delete it, <laughs> we do a new one, and you go again. You know, you're recording something. I mean, everybody records 12,000 TikToks before they finally actually hit send on the one that they do. So just try. I think it was Yoda that said, try and surprise yourself by what you accomplish, you might. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Folks enter the hospitality industry through a variety of avenues, but, and I'm just guessing here, less often through ballet or Broadway. Then there's our guest, Steve Konopelski. Steve is a former ballet dancer, turned Broadway performer, turned professional chef, turned celebrity chef, turned media personality. Steve's personal and professional evolution speaks to the aspirations we all have. And today we chat about the intention and the strategy that took Steve from doing to being. So for a little bit of context, I grew up in Saskatchewan, Canada on a grain farm, like literally in the middle, absolute middle of nowhere. I mean, it was a 25 minute drive to the nearest town and that town had 90 people. So that's where I went to <laughs> elementary school. I mean, three grades in one classroom. My class was five students. Like it was just kind of insane. Wow. And it just so happened that in another town that was like 45 minutes away, that's where our babysitter lived. And she took dance classes. And when we were young, my parents took us to see the recital. I kind of became instantly hooked. So that was maybe like I was six years old. And then that started kind of like the dance class thing. And as you maybe can imagine, being a farm kid in the 80s, in the middle of nowhere, who is now a dancer, was not really very well received. I definitely was one of those like square peg in a round hole kind of situations. So I just continued with that love. And as I took more classes and stuff, I needed to kind of better myself. So I started going to summer programs and then was eventually accepted to conservatory and then made this huge jump at almost 16 years old, moving away from home to go to like full-time ballet conservatory. And it was while I was in conservatory that I decided I don't want to be a ballet dancer anymore because of typecasting. So I'm 5'7". In the ballet world, to be like a principal male, you need to be at least 5'10". Mm -hmm. So I kind of knew like my career in the ballet world would be very, very sort of typecast. I would be pigeonholed to character roles. And I probably would have a good career as a contemporary dancer. But as is one who wants more in life, I was like, no, I want to be in front. I want to be the star. I want everybody to see me. So I made the switch to musical theater. 
which the irony of leaving ballet because of typecasting and going directly into musical theater has never been lost on me. <laughs> so I just went into a world that was nothing but typecasting mm-hmm. and kind of lived there for a while. But that took me to New York City. Working in New York took me all over the world. So that's like the first two thirds of my life is that. Well, you did it. And I can't remember who said it. And I'm going to butcher the quote, but they say like success leaves clues. So you were very successful, like in this particular facet of your life. And when you look back on it, what skills did you acquire from dance and musical theater? What lessons did you learn on your path to success that served you well in hospitality? I think one of the biggest things is dance is technique based. Though it is an art form, it's an art form that is 100% technique based. And so anybody out there listening already understands the correlation between that and cooking. We are in an industry that is at its core technique based. Once we know the technique, we can do whatever the hell we want, right? But until we understand fundamentals and in pastry, sorry, culinary people, but even more so in pastry where we have to understand chemical reactions, When we understand technique, then we can break the rules and manipulate them. So I think that is one of the things that was ingrained in me from day one as a dancer is technique, technique, technique. The other things that I think made my transition to the culinary world a lot easier was being aware of what everyone is doing around me at all times. When you're on the stage, it is not you. Even if you're in the front and everyone is behind you, you still need to know what's going on behind you. And that's exactly how the kitchen is. You cannot just be living in your own little bubble. You have to be part of the cacophony that is, right? That machine that is constantly moving. And I think another thing that dance really prepared me well for is just understanding my body, understanding muscle memory, understanding the importance of repetition, understanding how to be able to see something and immediately recreate it. Because that's what my entire dance training was all about. We had a teacher who would walk in and he would be like, this is how this goes. I will show you the exercise once so you can see the flow. Twice for the steps. If you need to see it a third time, get out and go to construction. (laughs) You're done. So I also kind of grew up in a toxic world as well. Mm -hmm. So all those things just, they just really propelled me right for the kitchen. It was kismet, really. What appealed to you about the culinary industry? And when you decided to go to culinary school, What prompted that decision? What inspired the change? So I started looking at culinary schools about as early as 2005. And this historically is kind of the boom and the real height of Food Network and food entertainment, the birth of celebrity chef on a much more global scale, all that type of stuff. So all of that was a lot more in the forefront. As, of course, the performer and actor in me sort of seeing, oh, hey, you can have a TV show and bake cakes too. That looks like fun. So That was a part of it that was very appealing. Also, again, I'd been doing this for like two thirds of my life. So my body was starting to get tired. And I was very tired of walking into an audition, going to callback after callback after callback. And then at the end being like, we love you. You're great, but you're too short. And I'm like, I was this short three weeks ago when we started this process. So (laughs) why did you put me through all of this if that's the thing? Which, of course, I'm sure that wasn't. But I wanted to be in an industry that talent really sort of spoke for itself. 
So the more and more I kind of researched the culinary industry, the more I fell in love with that. The kitchen doesn't care if you're fat, tall, short. It doesn't care about your skin color. It doesn't care about your gender. It doesn't care about your identity. All it really and truly cares about is, can you do the job, yes or no? And I found that really, really appealing. And I wanted to be in a place where talent sort of spoke for itself. You were a great dancer. And when you're great at something, you get used to being great at something, right? And then it becomes part of your identity. I'm great at dancing, which means I'm great generally. And then you start doing something that you're not great at. I just took up tennis. And I'm definitely, definitely not great at tennis. But it's a humbling experience. And it does maybe not negatively affect your personal identity, but it certainly informs it. What was it like to go from being at the top of the heap to the bottom rung and learning something from the ground up? That first day of culinary school, I think is probably for me the scariest moment of my entire life to date because of that exact same thing. For my whole life, I was Steve the dancer. And all of a sudden, I had hung up my shoes. I had deliberately like turned off social media because I didn't want to see what Broadway show my friends were doing. I was like, I am in this to win this. So I'm standing in culinary school in my brand new spanking, clean whites, like everybody else. We all look like a bunch of, you know, deer in headlights kind of thing. And I was petrified, constantly thinking, did I make the right choice? Did they make the right choice? It just so happened that the chef instructor that day, who I never had again my entire time at culinary school, was Chef Tony. And she had been a dancer with Alvin Ailey Company for like 20 some odd years before retiring. So as soon as class was over, I just went up to her and I was like, Chef, I'm a conservatory kid. I'm a Broadway kid. This has been my whole life. And I don't know how to make this transition. What did you do? And she just pointed out to me all of the things that we had just talked about. You're a dancer. So as a dancer, you understand spatial awareness. You understand muscle memory. You understand all these things. You understand also the importance of a hierarchy, of listening to the person who's above you, all this stuff. She's like, all you've done is traded the studio for the kitchen, but it's the exact same set of skills. It's just the tools are different now. And as soon as she pointed that out to me, culinary school was quite easy because of that training of technique is important. So yes, I maybe didn't know how to make an Italian meringue, but I knew that it's important to understand why Italian meringue works a certain way. So paying attention to that and then going, okay, great. What's the next thing? We're laminating. Great. What did, you know? So I loved every second of culinary school because it wasn't new to me. It was just the decor had changed. Speaking for myself personally, and maybe you could speak to this as well, I've been lost in my life and lost in my career during different periods. And more often than not, it's because I lacked intention. I hadn't clearly defined what success was in this endeavor or that endeavor or in this particular moment in my life. When you entered culinary school, did you have a clear vision of what winning looked like? Not really, because it was such a new world to me. And I think I wasn't naive enough to go into culinary school saying, when I graduate, I'm opening this bakery and I'm da 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 and blah, 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 blah. Of course, I had this sort of vision of maybe one day I'll have like a cooking show or maybe this, that, whatever. But I did set one goal, which was to graduate top of my class. And I felt like that was a very achievable goal, something to kind of propel me through the wilderness as I really discovered exactly who I was. And I did that. I did. 
I did graduate top of my class. And as I'm kind of going through there, then that's how life is, right? We're on a path and all of a sudden other little paths creep up. And do we grant ourselves permission to explore this new thing that didn't exist 15 or 20 steps ago? Or do we say, mm, no, I really want to be committed to where I'm going and I'm going to kind of see that through. And I don't think that there's a right or a wrong in that. It's just what feels true and the most honest to you at that time as you're moving forward. And one of those opportunities was the leap into entrepreneurship by opening a bed and breakfast bakery hybrid. That seems like a really weird combination, yeah? <laughs> it kind of is. The B&B was born out of a joke that my husband and I had had that when we were old gays and retired that we would open up this B&B. And we were living in New York. I was actually working for Claudia Fleming, name drop, as her <laughs> assistant, a job that I drove two hours each way to do. Sometimes it was like five in the morning by the time I actually got home. And I worked for her. She had an inn and a restaurant, so the North Fork Table and Inn, which she doesn't own anymore. So I kind of was in that mode and we were looking to move. And one day my husband said, there's all these old houses down in Maryland that were B&Bs and we can afford them. Like we could do this now while we're young and we have the energy and we care instead of waiting until we're like old and retired and hemming and hawing and whatever. And okay, finally. So we did that. And the bakery came from the B&B because the local community was like, oh, there's this bed and breakfast, but how do we come and have breakfast with you? I'm like, well, you have to stay the night. Mm. Well, I don't want to stay the night because I live down the block. So how do we get your food? And we started just doing like farmer's markets. And then when we would sell it at the farmer's market really quickly, it's like, well, why are we hauling all this stuff to the farmer's market when we have this gorgeous 150-year-old Victorian house with all these rooms? Let's maybe convert one into like a miniature little bake shop. And then that became so popular that we started doing catering on site and we started doing like a monthly brunch and we did weddings and more bridal showers than I can care to admit. <laughs> Baby showers, all that business. And then eventually an opportunity came to actually open a standalone bakery. So it was just that sort of natural evolution. Hey, this is something that's needed in my area. So let's do it. We did high tea for a while. And after a while, people got bored with it. So then we stopped. The brunches became more and more popular to the point where we shut down the B&B on the weekends because we did brunch there instead. We made more money doing a brunch than we did by renting out the room. So we're like, okay, don't have to clean the toilets. Great, we'll do something else. So that's how we constantly operated when I kind of went into business mode. If it works, keep going. If not, cut it off. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I don't want to gloss over it because... Yeah, it does seem really natural and easy and organic the way it worked, but it's because you were open and because you were listening and because you weren't married to your own ideas. I've said this many times on the show, and it is still as true as it ever was. I mean, we launched lunch three times over the course of six years in my fine dining restaurant downtown. And the reason that we did it three times was because nobody fucking wanted it. And so we did it, and then we shut it down. And all I needed was like, one homeless guy to say, hey, why aren't you open for lunch? I'm like, look, we need to do this. The people are ravenous. <laughs> and we did this again and again and again. But again, like when you're pliable and you're open and you kind of understand this broad idea that you can't create demand, right? You can really only meet it where it exists. 
that you're able to have this, obviously not completely effortless, but like this organic, natural, linear growth, right? Yeah, you have to be so in tune with the local customer, the local community, the local temperature, the environment, all that type of stuff. We opened our business in Denton, Maryland, which is just a little like dust speck on the eastern shore. It's one of those towns you drive through. And people were always the time like, well, why did you open there? First of all, it was affordable. Secondly, there was no other B&B in the county. So when you're the only game in town, you don't have competition, let's go for it. You can kind of make up the rules a little bit as you go along because there's no set expectation there. And then as the people are clamoring for this, that, whatever, then you listen to them. And then you get media attention, national media attention, right? Seated in Denton, Maryland. (laughs) I mean, it's bananas, right? And maybe again, success leaves clues. How did that national attention come about? And was it intentional? That was not coincidence because coincidence is simply just when opportunity meets preparation. So I had been following a bazillion chefs on Facebook as one does. And I don't remember who it was that had posted, there's a national TV show that's looking for pastry chefs. That was it. That was the only information. And I'm like, sounds great. So, (laughs) you know, threw in my resume. And then two months later, the post came out again, but now it was a little bit more details. Food Network is looking for blah, blah, blah. So I applied again. Two months of interviews and more applications, sending them an arm, a leg, blood, like the whole thing. But all through that, when I was meeting with producers, one of the things that they kept on hinting to was, oh, you used to be an actor. You understand what it's like to be in front of the camera. You know how to take direction. Dot, 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 dot. So after like my second time, I remember saying to my husband, I have this. I am booking this show because of my background. And you know, sure enough, season two of Holiday Baking Championship, available now on Hulu and Discovery+. Plus. Um, <laughs> And I went, I remember first day of filming, we're sitting all around like this table, you know, whatever, producers are coming in, da 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 And I'm looking around and I'm going, oh, this is not a baking competition. This is a television show. You're the black guy. You're the old lady. You're the cranky one. You're the pretty ingenue. Like, I just saw the typecasting and I'm like, I'm the gay one. Great. And so as soon as I knew my role, And then we start going into the thing, you know, I was a little bit scared because you still have to make sure you don't burn the house down. But I also knew if you make good TV, they're going to keep you. So -hmm. if it comes down to you and some other person in the bottom and you're entertaining and the other person is boring as shit, then they're going to keep the one that makes good television. And that was kind of the cards that I held close to my chest is when I was on set This was a world that was not foreign to me at all. I knew how to behave when camera was in my face. I could feel it. I remember the first bake that we did. I kind of screwed up a little bit and they're counting down five, four, three, two, one. And I like threw my towel down because I was angry that I didn't finish plating. And all of a sudden I felt every camera in the entire room focusing in on me. I heard the PA go, Steve's pissed. Quick, camera two, get in. And I was like, oh, you people want a moment? Then I will give you a moment. (laughs) And I lived in that way longer than I should have but I knew what my job was. And every subsequent time when I kind of went back, I was like, I'm here because this is a TV show. 
I'm also here because I have the skills to be able to be on this TV show. But this is a TV show. P.S. Food Network, if you're listening, I will come back. Thank you very much. (laughs) Just waiting for the call until finally I actually got to win one. But that first one, we started filming one month after the B&B had opened had officially opened. So we were just brand spanking new. We had to close for a month and people were like, well, why? And we made up some sort of thing that I was dealing with my aged sick mother. And coming home from that, knowing that I had, spoiler alert, made it to the finale, I knew we had eight episodes of national television and could have the opportunity to kind of almost be the small town hero. So we marketed the hell out of that hired a marketing person created a whole campaign had to keep the whole thing secret but we did this really cool thing where we went to the local pub the only restaurant in town on a sunday night to have them air the holiday baking championship on food network while the you know football game is going on on the other end and then it's like oh hey steve made it to the end of this show should we do this again next week and then it just kind of became this thing to the point when we were watching the finale, the entire town was there. It was like a scene out of some like 1950s black and white movie. It was very, it's a wonderful life. I felt so terrible knowing what my personal outcome on the show was, but I had all of this support of the town right away. And that really catapulted our business completely forward. It was the town golden boy. You know, we could kind of just really do anything that we wanted because Oh, he put the positive spin on Denton. We never hear about Denton in the news unless it's for a fire or somebody got shot. So it was just this opportunity that kind of threw itself in my lap and we took it and ran with it and tried to cash in on it as much as humanly possible. Which is interesting because, I mean, this is an industry that pays little attention to marketing and certainly no attention to personal branding outside of, I would say, a handful of celebrity chefs in a world of tens of thousands of chefs. What opportunity did you see post-show in transforming who you are into a personal brand? Up until that point, I didn't consider myself a brand. I think I was trained in culinary school the way so many people are, that it's not about you. It's about the food. That's how I wanted to approach things. That's how I wanted to do the business. It was never going to be Stephen Rob's Lakeside B&B or whatever. It was always supposed to be about the food, about the experience. But all of a sudden, I have to become a brand as well. And it was just one of those things where if we don't market this and take advantage of it, it's going to go away. And so all of a sudden, now we've got two brands. We've got the business, and then we have me. And we could kind of cross-pollinate, and we could kind of do all these things. I went and did all sorts of little mini lectures around our area and cooking demonstrations and all that stuff, not as the guy who runs Turnbridge Point, but as the guy who was on the Food Network. And it's weird. I think it's weird because that's the whole reason the kitchen is in the back. And we don't like open air kitchens as much as anybody says that. We don't. We don't want to be on display. We want the food to speak for itself. Get out there. We're awkward when we're dealing with the public. We don't want to do any of that. But if you have to, and I'm not awkward with that. I love it. I live for standing in front of the people. I'll do it all day. So for me, it actually wasn't challenging. And I think I really appreciated and I loved that. I lived for it. I lived for the fact that I could actually also be me and not just the guy who's making the croissants in the back. What we're talking about here is permission. And I think that it's a really important idea to unpack 
because whether it was me starting this show, you with your YouTube channel, all of the marketing that you do, your evolution into personal branding, no one gave you permission to do that. You gave yourself permission to do that. You empowered yourself to say, this is who I am. I'm proud of who I am. I have a message that I believe will enrich the lives of others, and I'm going to start sharing it. And I think we exist within an industry of people that's waiting for the green light. And I think it's incredibly unfortunate. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I think there's also this attitude, or not maybe not attitude, but this sort of preconceived notion that you can't have both, that you can't be chef whomever and the chef of whatever, but you can. And it is hard because in this industry, we literally live in our kitchen. I remember sleeping on bags of flour when I worked at a hotel because you just had to be there till everything was done. And it was like, well, three more hours, my next shift starts. I'll just sleep right here in the kitchen. We also sort of feel that we don't have enough time to be able to split and divide our energy. And when our business was at the height and all of that, I was exhausted. I mean, sometimes I was doing 18 hour days, but that's what you do when you want to kind of be successful and you pick and choose and you find what works. You don't do what doesn't work, but you do have to give yourself that permission. And it's fine. I now teach and I tell my students all the time, you have to grant yourself permission to have a new dream and follow that dream. And because you do, it doesn't mean that you weren't successful in the other dream. What it means is you are now allowing yourself the opportunity to do something else. And there's nothing wrong with that. So step one is permission. But then step two is execution. It's actually doing it. And I think that's a hurdle for so many of us. I think that one of the reasons that you don't see a lot of chefs and restaurateurs out front and center as a brand or advertising their brands, marketing their brands, telling their stories is because they don't know what to say. I think that a lot of people can entertain a conversation like this, but as soon as you turn the camera on, your mind goes blank. You have this dazed look on your face. You don't know what to say to people. So for those that aren't comfortable with creating content or don't really know how to say or when to say it, how did you figure it out? How did you figure out what you would create and how you would position it in a way that it would be interesting to others? The first thing is I wanted to make sure that no matter what I did was authentically me. It took me a long time to be comfortable with myself as a human being, probably longer than it should have. But when I finally also granted myself permission to be who I am and be unapologetically me, I needed to make sure that no matter what it is that I do, that it is also me, really and truly being me. And that was a little bit of a difficult thing to do at first with our business. The YouTube show that I created, I created it because I didn't see any other medium for being able to actually be me. You know, if I was working under a network, for example, you don't get responsibility for creating that. You're slotted into the peg. And I wanted to tell my story in the way that I felt like telling it and be stupid about it or whatever. And if people wanted to watch it, great. And if they didn't, well, then it is what it is. But you just have to try. You have to put your foot forward and you just have to try. And you're going to stumble along the way. You may end up saying something stupid, but that's the great thing about film. 
we delete it, <laughs> we do a new <laughs> one, and you go again. You know, you're recording something. I mean, everybody records 12,000 TikToks before they finally actually hit send sure. on the one that they do. So just try. I think it was Yoda that said, try and surprise yourself by what you accomplish, you might. <laughs> Did you recruit strategic partners? Yes. A friend of ours who had a marketing firm, we confided in her as soon as I came home from the Food Network show. And then we built a website. We tried to integrate everything into sort of our business model. And then as that grew for a while, they were responsible for our social media. And then we eventually kind of took charge of our, once we sort of were kind of shown the ropes of you really should have maybe not a daily post, but a consistent post that is at the set time, every single two days or a week or, or whatever the case might be, search engine optimization, all these things that I was like, what the hell is this? Like, you mean I can't just do a hashtag? Like I have to be very, very calculated about all of the things that I do depending on the time of day and yada, yada, yada. So once we kind of learned a little bit of those rules, we were able to take charge of that for ourselves. When it came time to create the YouTube show, some really good friends of ours are documentary producers. And we just sat down one day while drinking, as one does. And we're like, what if we did something like this? Like, what would that look like? And they were in the process of starting their company. So they're like, oh, this is so different from what we want to do. Let's partner up together and let's do this so they can have this sort of stuff to show. We can do other things besides a documentary on trees. And then I got somebody to be able to film this for free, all this type of stuff. It's one of the reasons season two is taking so long because season two has to be paid for. But season <laughs> one was free, um, <laughs> you know. So, so, but yeah, there's, I mean, people come to us in this industry because we're the professionals. So go to somebody who is a professional in film, editing, social media, marketing, all that type of stuff. That's why they're there. They've spent their whole life working in that industry. They know what to do. So enlist their help because they don't know how to showcase the food. You do, but you don't know what the tools for showcasing the food are and they do. So just get in bed with each other. Sage advice. <laughs> it works. It works on so many levels. <laughs> your path in your career definitely deviate from the traditional life of a culinary school graduate. but we're seeing more and more of that. And for those that love food and love cooking, but they don't want to work in a traditional chef role their entire career, what options are there for them? Oh God, I think the sky is the limit really for food-based stuff. I unfortunately kind of feel like the pandemic made everybody think that they're a chef or a pastry chef because all of a sudden we finally discovered the lost art of bread making once mm -hmm. again when we couldn't buy it. So social media is sort of a little bit, I think the baking pool could use a little chlorine um, in some, <laughs> of this, some of the social media. But the experts always rise to the top, right? I follow a few different TikTokers. I have no idea what they look like because all of the video is just some awesome chopping and some plating and whatever. And I still follow it. And they have way more followers than Sally Housewife who bakes in her backyard because they're the expert and people realize that and people gravitate towards that. So I think obviously there's that type of stuff, food writing, food photography. There's like so, so much 
that the industry currently has. And I guess the other thing is some of the stuff we have now, we didn't have five years ago. There was no TikTok five years ago. Who knows what's going to be in another two, three, four, five years. So kind of just riding the wave and going, hey, my place where I might really succeed perhaps doesn't exist yet. Or if the job that you want doesn't exist, then make it yourself. Just create it. The restaurant industry is filled with these unspoken rules and traditions of how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I think we just need to always be open to the evolution of sort of technical things. We don't make pie dough the way it was done 150 years ago because we have refrigeration. We have better tools and means. The principle is still the same. We're cutting fat in. We're adding some moisture. We're not overworking it so that we don't develop gluten. But there's so many different ways of doing it now. I mean, we just need to be open to there might be somebody out there who has found another way. There's more than one way to put on a pair of pants. And just because you've been putting your pair of pants on one way your entire life doesn't mean that you can't also lay down and pull them up and then stand up because it still works. And so I think we're such a industry that is rooted in tradition. We sort of feel like, oh, Auguste Escoffier is going to roll in his grave if we don't do it this way, the same way they've been doing it for 400 years. Well, that's fine and good, but that doesn't mean there isn't another way. I think, you know, molecular gastronomy I think 50, 60 years ago, people would have just been like, what, really? That's going to be a thing? Deconstructed plating? That's going to be a thing? People are going to line up and pay insane amounts of money for deconstructed plating? Like, nobody would have thought that that would have been the thing. But it is, because somebody took a chance, somebody took a risk, and somebody says, no, I'm going to think outside the box. I'm going to break the mold, and I'm going to dare to be different. And then when they did... Everyone was like, oh, they're a genius. But I'm going to go back to doing it the way that I've been doing it for 400 years. Just don't be afraid to break the mold and do something different. Molds can always be made out of something else. That's Steve Konopelski. For more on The Chef, check out his YouTube channel linked to in the show notes. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.